0: All right, thanks, Taylor. Um, one thing, Dan may have said this uh, when he was uh, prepping Taylor to come up here, but one thing we hope for for these times is that people, uh, that you guys would see how your stories maybe cross over a bit. You know, because in, in some ways, we're, we're very different as people, but in some ways, we're a lot alike. And so I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, there's a, kind of, a lot of cool universal themes there about God's grace that uh, really does transcend, right? Uh, he's the same towards all of us and the same every day, yesterday, today, and forever Uh, as the scriptures say, never changes. So thanks so much. And actually kind of set us up thematically too with uh, a little bit of a nod towards washing and leprosy. So we'll talk about some of that today uh, as well. But uh, welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all uh, here today, especially if you're visiting. Like Leah said, welcome. We are in a series right now in the Gospel of John. We're in the end of chapter three. Uh, We'll be in this book for another uh, well, just a long time. I can't even remember. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a long book, a good book. We're looking forward to the continued journey. Uh, but we're going to be in the end of chapter 3 today, verses uh, 22 to 36. If you have a, a Bible app or a, 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 on your phone or a, a Bible you want to um, open up to, that'd be great. Uh, also in the sermon inserts in the worship folders, feel free to follow along. Uh, we're going to go back to hearing from John the Baptist today. Uh, remember, uh, John the Baptist is not to be confused uh, with John the Apostle, who wrote this book, who wrote this gospel. Uh, John the Baptist, remember, was the final preparer of the way of Jesus, who uh, in himself uh, is a person who kind of embodied both the law and the prophets, uh, those two main sections of the Old Testament that serve the same purpose, to prepare the way for Jesus to come into the world to right all wrongs and to save us and to bring humanity back to God. So uh, we're going to look at today what uh, I think, uh, this may be a bit subjective, I was telling some of our uh, staff and leaders this morning uh, that I, I think this is uh, John the Baptist's pinnacle moment of theological brilliance in all of the New Testament, uh, his, his moments. Uh, not to downplay uh, anything else he says, uh, and that may sound a bit overstated, but uh, I think it's the way that he says what he says today, mixed with how human and just kind of down-to-earth and relatable he gets, uh, that's just just really, really good. So uh, let me read it, and then we'll come back to some of the high points uh, today and, uh, and touch uh, on them, one of which is, he must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, we'll come to that and sort of summarize a lot of what he's saying With those words later on. Uh, But today, let's start with verses 22 here and read through the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, so this passage begins with describing where Jesus went after talking with Nicodemus, which we spent a few weeks looking at that exchange, if you were here for that, which was into the country to oversee his disciples who were continuing to administer John the Baptist's type of baptism. It's a little bit confusing in terms of who's baptizing. It's not clear in this passage, but it says in next week's passage, I believe, that Jesus himself is not baptizing, but his disciples are. Uh, but the type of baptism here is not what we understand, what many of us might understand is uh, traditional Christian baptism, but rather continuing to administer John the Baptist baptism, which was a baptism of repentance and preparation and purification. Uh, true Christian baptism, which associates the believer with Jesus' death and resurrection and the receiving of the Spirit, was yet to come. And so the point here is simply to to show that uh, further that there's this movement away from John to Jesus that's happening. Uh, Movement away from the preparer to the fulfillment. Old is making way for the new. Law is moving to grace. Uh, That's what's meant to be uh, symbolized here. Uh, It's stated quite clearly earlier in John, but we also see it narratively expressed in different ways as well. So when John, the man of the law, who was born of priests, who represented the law... Uh, stepped back uh, to give way to the man who was born of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. All of this is meant to sort of, um, at least indirectly, and, and to suggest that something new is here. Uh, a, a new tribe, a, a new way, a new uh, covenant is coming through this, this one man. So the fact that Jesus is doing the, baptiz- the baptizing or his disciples are kind of under his oversight is yet another one of these instances uh, and suggestions in, in the book. So uh, baptism and and washing uh, happening here, narratively and historically, mixed with the the apparent changing of the baptism guard, so to speak, from John to Jesus, was uh, leading people to ask questions, naturally, about purification. So so verse 25, I think, is a, a key contextual verse to all of what's happening today, so let me read that again. It says, now a discussion arose as they're watching baptisms happen, as they're realizing John the Baptist is stepping back, Jesus is stepping forward, washing is taking place. These are Jews, remember, as well, who have uh, centuries and centuries' worth of traditions of washing rituals and purification rites as well. So to see that not happening, but baptisms instead, would have just naturally elicited this, this uh, wonder and these questions about what does it mean to be pure? What is purification? And so debate was happening pure, uh, about purification and about washing. Discussion was happening over what it, it meant. And, and I like this because in many ways, things haven't changed for 2,000 years. Uh, the setting has changed, and maybe the words we might use has changed. Uh, but wherever we're at spiritually, we ask this question all the time. Uh, sometimes, maybe many times, without even realizing it. We discuss with ourselves and others what it means to be pure, what it means to be on the right side of history, what it means to be a good human being, what it means to be worthy, what it takes to be looked up to, how we might atone for our past sins and balance the ledger in our favor. It is really a daily discussion we have with ourselves and others, Christian or not, religious or not. We all ask these questions and deal with these things, whether they press in from the outside or come up from within. Uh, For some, it might take the form of eating disorders or self-harm. Others from a very conservative Christian background uh, may have had CD-burning parties back in the 90s. Uh, Or think that not watching rated-R movies and not drinking alcohol, that's what makes me pure. Or for others, it's about a worldview, or an exercise routine, or eating less sugar, or political allegiance, or making a small carbon footprint, or doing everything we can to lobby for human rights. That's what makes me pure when I do those things, or abstain from those things. Or maybe it's your Wordle score from this morning that determines how good you feel about yourself, even just for a moment, because you beat your friend. I mean, the the list goes on, Uh, whether serious things, Or light things religious or irreligious but to the question of what does it mean to be pure or even to be holy usually our answer has something to do with us and our actions what we accomplished what we value what's on our resume what's on our social media profile what we post but John's response challenges that idea outright and I have three big things I want to touch on today, and one thing from John the Apostle, who throws in his two, the author who throws in his two cents at the end as well. But primarily looking at John the Baptist today, who again, remember, in context here, the idea is what is purification? What does it mean to be washed and to be pure as baptisms are happening? As this key John the Baptist figure is there stepping back, and someone else is stepping forward as the covenants are changing. What does it truly mean? What's happening here? in history, and in Scripture. The first is this, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. All right, that's pretty black and white, right? John's saying a person cannot receive even one single thing unless God gives it. So, and on topic, like, uh Here's the thing, two things here. In one sense, he's talking about his role, uh, that God gave him his role, and God gave him a role that was meant to end. He was a preparer of the way, but not the way. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, right? Uh, But also on topic, uh, here's the thing. Not one thing includes purification, right? Right? If you think about, like, just everything under the sun, if this includes every single thing uh, that people receive into their life, good gifts, we might say, um, that includes purification. That includes purity. That includes holiness. One cannot be holy or be pure unless God chooses to give that to someone. Right? This is an exception. Purification is an exception to that rule. It's not like everything under the sun comes from God, except purification that comes from our heart. That would be, obviously, to be unfaithful to the passage and to what John is seeking to say. No one can be pure unless it's given from heaven. Purity comes from outside as a gift, like water from the sky or from a faucet or from a river. Whether it's a state of being, being pure, or an act of goodness, doing something pure, all of it is is given. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 7 says something similar. What do you have that you did not receive? Uh, Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church, saying, Tell me, church. And in this moment, they're actually living quite arrogantly. There's factionalism happening in the church, if you kind of know the context to, there, to the whole thing. But Paul, to kind of like quell that a bit and to, and to serve as a remedy for their arrogance, he says, What do you have in your life, spiritually or physically, that you did not receive from your Father? in heaven. And the answer, the applied answer of course, is nothing. You have nothing in your life. Whether you worked for it or passively received it, it doesn't matter. It's given, 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 given. So that as the argument goes then, why do we live as though we've earned our blessings? Why do we compare ourselves with others? Why do we talk as though purification comes from us? I, I think these two verses here um, in John three and then in First Corinthians four are the opposite of the worldly notion of if you try hard enough, anything is possible. We hear that every day, some form of that, right? It's the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's to say actually that that's not it at all. Like you can't, not only is that, that statement not true, there's many things we can't do no matter how hard we work at it, but, but even like behind all of it, the idea is that even if we do work for things, God, if that's the conduit, that God is still behind the veil. He's still behind and, and in and through our work. So it's how his gift presents in our life. If if we are the conduit for how the gift presents, he is still the power. He's still the source, the blessing, and the ultimate giver. Uh, Paul Muldoon recently said on the New York Times Book Review podcast, he's the guy who is working with Paul McCartney, apparently on some kind of project. Maybe some of you know more about that than I do. I don't know much about it, but uh, he said about Paul McCartney, that uh, he would be known for saying things like this. I I do not quite know what I'm doing when writing a song. I'm a vehicle for something beyond myself. It comes from somewhere beyond. It visits me. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, It's uh, probably more Christian than he realizes. Uh, But you can see the note of humility in this and the uh, almost an otherworldliness and a mysticism to it, he's just saying, it's actually not for me, the songs. They, they visit me from outside of me. It's a very Christian way of thinking, uh, actually. But when, when applied to our purification and to our notion of salvation, all of a sudden we stop trying to prove that we're saved, right? Um, and of course, trying, not, we stop trying to save ourselves as well, but I think for a lot of Christians, uh, the issue becomes less that, but more about, do we need to prove that we're saved? Uh, and if this is true, if all things are given, if, if purity and goodness and holiness is, is a gift, we stop trying to prove it. Uh, we don't need to prove to anybody or to God that we're saved. We receive it. We don't work it up from, out, from within us. We instead live out of the goodness and purity that God gives us uh, through Christ's death and resurrection. Remember that John the Baptist is deflecting here. His followers are saying, John, look, people are going to Jesus more than you. Aren't you upset about this? Aren't you concerned? And if if all of this is true, that all things are given, nothing's earned, then we need to widen our gaze. That's the the point of this. Uh, In the end, if all this is true, who cares if I'm successful or not? Who cares if I'm being used by God or not? Who cares how big my church is? successful my ministry is who cares if I'm a better person than that person over there or not and the questions might not always be this binary or this dismissive but the point is grace helps us to rejoice that God is at work whether inside of us or outside it just doesn't matter it shouldn't the question becomes less like is he using me is he present within me do I see signs of blessing in my life and if I don't I start to worry because you connect that with your salvation or connect that with evidence that you are truly saved and we step back away from that and say, none of that matters. What matters is just that God is at work in somebody outside of me in my church, maybe through me as well. But either way, it's a gift, it's given and he chooses to dispense it and work through us as he wills. Not to sort of knight us or... Uh, flat, pat us on the back or or flatter us uh, in response to our choices that are apart from the working of the spirit see grace is the only way humility is possible understanding grace and I think Taylor maybe you uh, talked about this a little bit uh, we we talk about or the one-sidedness that idea in your um, we, we define grace here a lot as the, the one-way love of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One-way love. Uh, the, the Bible says elsewhere, if the second you add a percent of you and your works to the equation, grace ceases to be grace. This is from Romans 9 or 11, I forget, but it's grace ceases to be grace. Like it's, Grace is what it is only when you have this one-way God down to us, God descending, God coming to rescue, God coming to earth. Even uh, John John talks about this here, about the earthly and the heavenly, right? The one who's above all, all, and the one who's of the earth, people like us, in this case John the Baptist, people like us as well. But grace is the only way humility is possible. If we're all the focus, we have pride, we have fear, we compare ourselves to others, even if it's 1% of us, but if Jesus is the focus... Joy and humility tend to start to flow naturally, which one might say are pure traits, right? Our humility and joy may be part of what we might understand purity to be. I think we should. But the way that comes is not from you trying harder. Uh, It comes from stepping back and making life less about you and more about him. When that happens, um, understanding all is given, nothing's earned, Joy, humility, love uh, start to ensue, which again are, um, are pure, pure and good traits from the Spirit. The second thing that uh, he says, just moving on a verse later, is the one who has the bride has the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. All right, so if you're John's disciples at this point, and you're hearing this, maybe you're thinking, oh, I didn't realize we were at a wedding all of a sudden. When did we switch subjects? Uh, but he hasn't switched subjects, uh, right? He's saying, why are you shocked and concerned that more are going to Jesus than me? Now We talked about this a second ago too, but again, he's deflecting here, right? But he's saying, um, why, why are you so concerned that Jesus is in the spotlight? Why are you so concerned that I don't have as much of the, the accolade and the fame? I'm just the best man. I'm the friend of the groom. I'm I'm standing here and hearing him and rejoicing that it's his day. Uh, But again, he's the groom. I'm I'm just the uh, the friend of uh, friend of, of the groom. I mean, how odd would it be for people to be concerned that the best man was getting less attention than the groom at a wedding, right? People are like, oh my gosh, enough with the groom. Let's highlight the best man for crying out loud. Like we'd say, what are you talking about? Right, But that's kind of what what John is saying here is, is what are you talking about? Like, I'm not, I'm not the groom. There, there's a wedding happening, the wedding of the ages between God and sinners. I'm the preparer of the way. I'm the one giving the speech here. I'm the one um, in, uh, in, in ancient weddings and in the best, best men, but they had attendants. They had friends of the groom uh, like this. It's kind of like a best man. Thing, but, um, and he's standing there, and he's happy. He's happy that it's not about him. He's happy that life's not about him. He's happy that someone else is getting the fame. He's happy that someone else is getting more credit than he is. So it's a great lesson here, just for life in general. Uh, but in the grand scheme, it's, uh, he's saying that this is his role, right? He has a role, but his role is not to be, uh, not to be the, the groom. Uh, if you guys remember in The Office, you guys watched The Office, how... Um, there was, oh, there's this episode of Michael Scott at Phyllis's wedding. It's kind of like that, you know, if you, if you don't know it, just whatever. But, um, but there's this episode where he is um, just incredibly inappropriate. It's hilarious. But um, because he's trying to steal the spotlight. He's not even like the, he's not even the best, best man. So that's what makes it even further. But um, point is, John the Baptist is like the opposite of, um, of Michael Scott, basically, uh, in, in that whole Whole thing, but so that, that's kind of what's going on at face value. But in another sense, there's a deeper truth here. Uh, he says, John says, the one who has the bride is the groom. The one who has the bride is the groom. I was reading this with Aletha this uh, this past week. We both felt this was a very endearing and romantic image uh, that the groom has his his bride and he holds her and he cares for her and he's gentle with her and yet here's the kicker all right to go back to sort of verse 25 and and um the theme of purification that's threading through all of this the kicker is this relates to purification we are pure because christ has us it really is that simple if you've never heard that before please hear this You are pure because Christ has you. That's it. Nothing else in life or in death or in the next life makes you pure. Are you had or held by Jesus or not? That's it. Uh, Ephesians 5.25-27 picks up on this theme as well uh, from a different angle, but, but same theme of marriage. It says there, "'Husbands, love your wives.'" Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you guys see the the connection here that this makes between marriage and purity? Marriage and being washed, marriage and being made right with God, being made radiant. Do you see the causal relationship? Jesus gives himself away, it says. He offers himself up for sinners, for his church, the bride. And the church is, has no blemish anymore because of that action. So no blemish, how? Because of marriage. No blemish. How? Because of his actions, not our own. So the Bible, because of union with Christ, because of him uh, spilling his blood, and that becoming the true baptism, the true fountain, the true uh, liquid of purification. So the Bible says here that there is a discussion about purification happening. Remember that? They're seeing these things happening happen baptisms washings uh, they have their own history and laws but there's a discussion a, a debate happening what does it mean to be pure well in one sense we we should discuss in light of this language like do you guys believe this or not that, that's really and do i this is what it comes down to are we pure and blameless by way of jesus giving himself up for us or is that just part of the equation for you as a christian or like a, like a follow-up question could be, do you believe that, that your actions finish the job of purification? Or prove that you actually did receive the purity Christ offers you? Or is purity this like constantly moving needle that, that's based upon your pure or impure actions? Like, I was impure today because I looked at this thing or clicked on this thing, or did this thing, or didn't value this thing, or I was canceled for this thing by whoever, uh, or, but I, and I had a day where I didn't do all that, so now the needle's kind of like up here, right? Is that how we think? Is that, is that what this means? Is that, is that where joy comes from? Is that where peace comes from? Do you see how this matters? Does purity come from us or him or both? Those are your three options. Does purity come from God or from you or from both of you, kind of? And there's only one answer to that. It's only from him. Only. You don't cooperate with God to sanctify yourself. There's no cooperation. God does not barter with you or wait for you to bring something to the table. Either it's all him that makes us completely blameless and spotless through a marriage or a union to his son, where the son has the bride, holds the bride close, gives us his spirit, or it's nothing. Uh, purification laws in the Old Testament, which didn't work, that's part of what's going on here. Remember actually back in chapter 2, with um, the, uh, the, the turning of water to wine, how Jesus used purification jars that were normally used for purification rites, washings, washing people so they could approach God. How he repurposed them for something that something else entirely, to hold wine, which represented his blood. We talked about it there, too. I won't go back into all that for time's sake today. But purification and a changing of the guard and a changing of what it means to be pure is a huge part of what John's talking about here. It's not the laws and not the commandments of God. It's not the law. It's not what you do or don't do. It's not not the waters of the ritual of law-keeping. It's the blood of Christ. It's the baptism of his death and resurrection. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus himself. There's a change here. And Jesus is not adding himself to the law. He's replacing it. All right, and this last piece then is... um, From John 3.30, where where John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, And it is, man, it is hard, I think, for us to overstate how central this one verse is to the Christian life. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. The gospel must increase, and my own notion of self-righteousness must decrease. This is what sanctification is, by the way. Uh, Jesus gets bigger, we get smaller. His grace must get more prominent to me versus the idea of salvation becoming a stepping stone to bigger and better things. I was talking to uh, another Christian a few weeks ago before Christmas who works here in the cities with a global missions organization. We got connected because we had a mutual friend in ministry. Long story, it doesn't really matter. Uh, But she kind of came at this idea. We somehow got on this topic, and she came at this idea from a kind of a global Christian perspective, because she's lived many places in the world, and she said um, that for her, uh, she she thinks that for Christians in the West especially, although this is obviously a human problem, not just uh, a Western Christian problem, but she would say, especially for Christians in the West, Christianity often becomes just another form of self-improvement. Oftentimes for Christians in the West, the gospel is a stepping stone, not a landing pad. It's, it's uh, a doorway maybe to bigger and better things for you to have a self-improved life, to be happier, uh, to have most of your problems go away, to find a, a good deal of health and blessing, maybe money. I don't even just mean like health and wealth gospels, if you know what those are. I mean like this is something that is a, a more pronounced problem that crosses into every Every branch of Christianity, every denomination, it's, 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 it's a, a, disease, a cancer uh, in our hearts that the old, gospel alone can cure, but it's, but it's always there. And I think she's right. Like, I, I mean, I, I was the first to raise my hand and say, I've all, I mean, that's totally how I grew up. Not because I, don't, I think I was taught that, but because I was born into that. Uh, we're, like my old pastor used to say, we're all natural-born legalists. That's the whole point of the story. We're all children of Adam and Eve, right? What they do in the beginning? They said, I can be good without God. I can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the law, and things will be okay. And every, everything after that in the story is God reversing that curse. The curse is not just the doing of evil, it's the pursuit of good without God. And so the law was added not to be a solution, but to make the problem worse, Romans 5 says in Galatians 3, uh, it was to heighten the problem. But the law finishes its job with Jesus, uh, Galatians 3 and 4 also say. But the, the point is, it, it had a role. It led us to Christ. Like John the Baptist is leading people to Christ. But we can't keep the law. It's, uh, it is replaced by Jesus, not lumped onto, like Jesus is some kind of appendage. But he, he changes it. He changes things, and it's for our, for our benefit. So transformation, then, in the Christian life needs to happen in this way. Uh, we decrease. We become promoters of him. We live out of his love, and his gospel gets bigger and bigger. Uh, John says it must happen, actually. It must. This isn't is an option. This must be, be the case. John the Apostle's uh, two cents here at the bottom, he says, also help, he says, the Father loves the Son, God loves Jesus, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, couple of things here. First of all, um, all things mean, in part, you. Are you part of all things? You should think of yourself as part of all things. You're not the exception, nor am I. See, the gospel is the story that God is at work. God is on the move. Uh, God is, uh, it's the realization that God is up to something rather than demanding you to do something. That's a big part of John's theology as well. Uh, John 5 says uh, that God is at work again. He's recreating. It's a pronouncement that God is doing something in the world. It it is not a, uh, Jesus doesn't take on the form of a sage or like an approachable wise man uh, that people come to to ask how to have their best life now. But instead, he is at work. He's doing something, and part of what he's doing is God is giving you and me as sinners into the hand of Christ. That's the gospel. God is somehow making it possible to take sinners away from wandering from him and bringing them back into the hand of Jesus. That's part of the pronouncement of the good news of the gospel in the world. It's a story of God's work, not yours. The father is giving something to his son. He loves the son. And he's giving sinners uh, into his hand, not to be crushed, but to be held and protected and saved. Because, you see, he also gave something else into the son's hand. Uh, He gave a nail, uh, driven deep into it that he might give us into his hand as a bride's hand is given to a groom's at a wedding in order to save us from hell and death. And, and this is what it means to obey the Son, uh, by the way, going back to the last part there, or as it says elsewhere, to obey the gospel. Uh, Jesus says in John 14:1, believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, to obey Christ is to obey that and many other like statements. Otherwise, wrath remains on us. Purity and salvation do come at a cost. We're just not the ones who pay it. If we believe, we're not the ones who pay it. But purity and salvation do come at a cost. It's just not up to us to pay that cost. Jesus pays the cost. He's the one who washes us with water through the word of his grace by giving himself up and taking the wrath of God in our place. See how that's both a generous idea, a gift idea, but a um, costly idea at the same time? Which shouldn't shock us because it costs you money to buy a gift for someone, right? We, we, We see this every day in our lives. But it's the same for God, but at a higher level. Like the gift costs something, but the cost is not up to you to pay it with your amazing life or what you have to offer him. It's constantly... Past, present, and forever future, a one-way love of God, never reciprocated back. Though we respond to it open like a flower up underneath it, it's always one way that will never change. I hope that's good news to you guys. It should be. If it's offensive, that's probably good too, because you're understanding how little you have to do with your salvation. But I hope it's good news that it will never, ever change. Like There's not some date in history where all of a sudden, well, now it's two-way, You know, now all of a sudden it's ran its course and now it's up to you to prove with your actions and your self-promotion and your own pure decisions in life and values that you're worthy of saving. That's not how it works. Praise God it doesn't work that way, nor will it ever. But the gospel is, another way to say the gospel is is this. You you have been washed. What, What tense is that? What, what's the verb there? It's, it's past tense, right? It's, it's, we're, we're passive in, 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 that, in, in this verse. You, you have been washed, Christian. If you believe the gospel, it's done. The gospel is not wash yourselves. You actually see that phrase come up in the Old Testament because that's the law speaking. The law says wash yourselves with, uh, from the jars of purification with water. If you're a leper, get outside the camp for days and days until you don't have it anymore. Deal with the problem yourself. Then approach God. But that's the Old Testament. That's the shout of the law from the, Mount, from the, the top of Mount Sinai. The, the, void, the, the blood of Christ, as Hebrews says, speaks a better word than the law did. Because it doesn't say wash yourself. It says you have been washed by someone else. Your feet have been washed by, by the Christ. Your souls have been washed with the water of salvation. I think this, this is why baptism is such a rich symbol of salvation because when someone's baptized, the waters don't come from inside of us, right? Um, they're outside of us. Someone else lowers us into the water. Like when I was baptized, my old pastor, I had to rely on him to lower me in, right? Just like you guys and I have to rely on God to save us. We don't, no one baptizes themselves in the waters of baptism, we are a billion miles from our good deeds. We've left them on the shore, knowing they can't save us, and we've put ourselves into the hands of another, relying on them to wash us. And like the waters were plentiful in the Judean countryside, the waters of the blood of Jesus are plentiful as well. His grace always abounds. Psalm 137 says, With the Lord there is not just redemption, but plentiful. Redemption, or as verse thirty-four said today, um, the Spirit gives without measure. That—that that is to say, not in a measured response to what you've done for Him, uh, not in a measured response to how much you've approached Him or sought Him out. I love what Taylor said in his testimony. It's just so relevant. Um, we're not a friend of God based on how much we think of Him or what we do for Him. We're a friend regardless. Of that. That's not to, to promote laziness or idleness or sin. It's just to say, welcome to life. Welcome to reality. Because all of you, every day, will sin a thousand times, no matter how hard you're trying. That's the point, right? So where's the gospel then, right? What, 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 is the gospel enough then or not? That's the point, right? And that becomes the balm, but also the motivator to get up and dust yourself off and to live freely in the limelight of the empty tomb and at the foot of the cross. So I I think the invitation then here for all of you, I don't know where all of you are spiritually today, even like all of you are Christians, are coming in, maybe really, really, really hurt or maybe flying high. And the good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter. You're all like sitting there on the same level of this room and you all take the same bread in the cup. Uh, It's not like we give more to people who are having a good day. You get a little bit more of the blood in the body because you've done something for someone today. You know, you've raked your neighbor's leaves. Congratulations. You get two pieces of bread, right? It's level. There's no partiality. There's no such thing as a good or a bad Christian. Just are you saved or not? In Christ, there is no moral or immoral. Just like there's no male or female or slave or free, or Jew or Gentile. There's no good or evil. Are you saved or not? Are you washed or not? Are you married to the Son or not? Have you received purity from heaven or not? That's the question. It really is that simple. Are you held by the groom or not? John the Baptist is saying, guys, what are we talking about here? I am just, I am decreasing I'm stepping back and so should you. The invitation is come impure, come shameful, come guilty. Come those of you who are near and those of you who are far. And like John the Baptist, rejoice at the word of Christ that says he gave his body over to be crucified that you might live. Then take a step back and decrease. Rest, receive, and grow in grace. rest of your life. It really is sufficient for you today and every day into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you for how uh, it's really fascinating to me that John the Baptist understood this. I mean, that too is a gift, as we just read. It must be from you, but that he understood all of this and his followers didn't. It's really interesting how unique of a figure he is, uh, and, and we pray that um, like you opened his eyes, that you would all the more um, open ours, whether they're already open or not, uh, open them wider on this side of the cross to these things. Um, help us not to blend us with you or to believe that purity kind of comes from us um, after we've believed that it wholly comes from you. Uh, it is the context for so much New Testament teaching is that idea right there. Christians believing that grace is partial. Uh, it, it, it should be the context then too for so much of how we think and debate and talk and discuss as Christians. What does that mean? How does that look? How am I doing this as well? Um, instruct us, prompt us, uh, speak truth to us, Jesus. I pray that the gospel would be so so sweet uh, to us today as believers. And for those who are not here as well, for the first time, make it sweet. Uh, it is scandalous. It is unfair. It is an injustice that the Son of God would bear the, the wrath of his Father in our place and bear the high, pay the highest of costs, and yet it's true. And it really is uh, that simple because it's so, so not about us and so much about you um, that we can make these declarations and we can re-remember them and affirm them and eat them in communion, sing them uh, in the songs of grace we sing every week and kind of affirm them over each other too. Um, as we, we pray for oppor- I pray for opportunities for that, that this week, friend to friend, peer to peer uh, in this church and uh, those who are not here today who are homesick, for opportunities to, as Hebrew says, to help people be strong in grace. May we flex our muscles in grace, uh, not in the law, not in us, but in you and what you have to offer us. Um, Thank you so much for who you are, and please bless the rest of our service and our day. In Christ we pray. Amen.